Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, locking up children in the name of public health, scapegoating travelers, and putting a human face on cancel culture. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. We are not exactly on location, but we're in a different spot than our normal studio because as promised last week, we are starting production this week, actually as a matter of fact, starting tomorrow on our new documentary, Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. And I am actually in British Columbia this week, filming a bunch of great discussions and features of people that you will see when this documentary is released later in the year. And I just want to say on that note, thank you to all of the people who already have contributed, who have sent me ideas, who have offered themselves up as guests, who have suggested other people I should talk to. Believe me when I say this is very much appreciated. If you want more information about this project, you can head on over to assaulted.ca. But with the exception of the different scenery, this is a normal show, albeit one broadcast in a different location. I want to talk about the real tyranny that is taking place right now under the auspices of keeping people safe, under the auspices of public health, but moving far beyond that to such a point that not even an expert is able to identify where the science is in some of these measures, in particular in Peel region where children are being told they have to be essentially imprisoned in their bedrooms, kept away from their siblings, kept away from their parents, even if they don't have any COVID-19 symptoms. This is insane. This is not conjecture. It's not speculation. This is actually a document that was provided by the region of Peel about what to do if your child is dismissed from school or childcare and does not have any symptoms. The child must self-isolate, which means stay in a separate bedroom, eat in a separate room apart from others, use a separate bathroom if possible, and if the child must leave their room, they should wear a mask and stay two meters apart from others and any other children. So their siblings should stay home as well. They don't need to self-isolate in a separate room, but they can't go play with their friends, they can't see their family, and they certainly can't see the kid that we're locking in the first bedroom. And again, not to compare two things that don't have anything to do with each other, but remember the outrage at the idea during the Trump administration that kids were being just ripped away from their parents and kept in cages? Well, here we have Peel Region in Ontario telling parents they should keep asymptomatic kids that don't have COVID-19 in a room away from their family, away from their friends, away from their siblings, and this is all just hunky-dory. Now, the idea of bubble wrapping children has been a recurring theme throughout the pandemic. We know that transmission through kids is very rare. We know that serious uh, effect of COVID-19 on children is virtually non-existent. So the idea that we need to teach kids as though they are the potential patient zero of any number of outbreaks in the home or in childcare settings just isn't right, which is why getting them back to school has been so important. And by the way, supported by the evidence. My colleague, Anthony Fury, wrote a great piece about this story at the Toronto Sun, in which he talked to a couple of experts and, and found that no one can actually identify where the science is in this. 
This is cruel punishment for a child, especially for younger children, four to ten years old, says microbiologist Susan Richardson. She says shutting off a child for even 14 days could produce significant and long-lasting emotional and psychological effects. Well, yeah, no doubt. Tess Clifford, who is the director of the psychology clinic at Queen's University, says it's first off not even practically possible and highly likely to cause harm to children who would already be experiencing considerable distress with having to remain at home. And Hamilton Health Science infectious disease specialist Martha Fulford said, I don't understand how any healthcare professional has moved so far away from the fundamentals of public health and of doing no harm that they would think that basically incarcerating a child in a room for 14 days is in any way justified. This is not something that takes a rocket scientist or an infectious disease specialist to figure out, although I'm glad that they are lending their names with the many post-nominal letters behind them to explain why this is so dangerous. And you may think, okay, well, this is just one particular region in one part of Ontario, which is just one province in Canada. But what we've seen time and time again is that the fringiest beliefs one day tend to become normalized the next day and the day after and so on and so forth. So when I see one public health agency telling parents that they need to lock up their asymptomatic kids for two weeks just in case and start feeding, through, feeding them through a slot in the door like they are some sort of animal, I am outraged that anyone would think this is justifiable. And, and I would say that most loving parents would rather have their family just deal with COVID-19 and deal with the consequences of it rather than deal with this, rather than taking a child who maybe they, they say childcare, not just school. We're not talking about 17-year-old high school students who might love a house arrest with their own bathroom and room service every day. We're, we're talking about kids as young as, what, three, four years old. The idea that anyone would think this is justifiable is insane. And these are the so-called experts. I've talked in the past about the tyranny of experts, rule by experts. These people that aren't concerned about civil liberties, they aren't concerned about mental health, they aren't concerned about the economy, they aren't concerned about all of these other things that are negatively affected by their lockdown restrictions. Which is why when any government, federal or provincial, decides to completely abdicate its decision-making capability to the one-track mind so-called health tables, we see a lot of concerns like this that are not getting nearly enough attention. And by the way, this little handout from Peel Region was covered by the Toronto Sun. It was covered by Post Millennial. It was huge on Twitter. I did not see much mainstream media coverage. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't there. I, I didn't do an exhaustive search, but I did not see much mainstream media coverage of it at all. Is everyone just so desensitized to this? Is this, this just the norm by now? Or is this old news for a lot of parents? Because they've been told similar things by their own school boards or health units or whatever the case may be. But this is where you get very much into that territory at which point the cure is worse than the disease or the so-called cure because no one is being cured by locking a child up for 14 days and being told they can't even play with their siblings. First we take away their school, then we take away their friends, then we take away their family. And you know, I had a, a conversation with someone not that long ago that has stuck with me. I don't have children as you know, as I've talked about in the past, but I talked to someone who had a, a child who is I believe eight, eight or nine years old. And as we now pass the one year mark of this pandemic, this is one eighth 
of their child's life. If you take away the first couple of years where they're not really engaging in the world in the same way, it becomes even more stark. One-sixth of their alert, aware, lucid life that has been consumed by lockdowns. And as we go further and further down, the greater the proportion comes of children's lives that have been dominated by mask wearing and social distancing and no socialization because, well, that is antithetical to what is being fostered in the culture today. And when I say the longer it goes on, there's a reason for that, because we see the rhetoric really moving towards this point where it's not ending anytime soon. Take a look at this story in the National Post. COVID cases are falling globally, but it's not over for anybody, WHO officially cautions. Now, uh, here on The Andrew Lawton Show, we don't defer to the WHO on, well, pretty much anything, but we know that governments around the world are, including our own here in Canada, So when they put out these edicts, it's important to pay attention to them. One spokesperson for the World Health Organization, Dr. Mike Ryan, said that, well, you know, it's great we see in some countries some downward trends, but in other countries we don't see downward trends. So therefore, Dr. Ryan cautions, it's a lesson for all of us that this is not over. It's not over for anybody, and any relaxation of our resolve is dangerous. We need to be very aware the virus still has a lot of energy, and if the measures we apply are not persistent, comprehensive, and aimed at continuing to suppress transmission while introducing vaccines, we will pay a price. Yes, persistence and suppression are the key words there because it's pretty much the only thing governments are persisting at is suppression. And again, a divide, a great divide between actual public health measures and COVID theater that's taking place. Now, I know I've had a a lot of disagreement from listeners on this, and I don't particularly care. We can all have our own perspectives. I do take the virus seriously. I do think people, especially those with comorbidities, those with pre-existing conditions, need to take it seriously. But there is zero justification for the in-home imprisonment, for house arrest of children. There is zero justification for completely writing off any sort of economic growth or even economic survival just because we've determined that lockdowns make it look like we're doing something about this when we know they are not effective. All they do is delay the inevitable. They don't achieve the stated result. And if we are, in fact, waiting for the vaccine, that's what the WHO has said there, that, well, we just have to keep the suppression of this long enough that we can all get vaccinated. Well, Canadians are screwed. Canada has proven itself to be unable to do this vaccine rollout. I remember when we were in 20th place in the world and then 30th and then 35th and 40th. And and now we are there are almost 50 countries ahead of Canada as far as their share of their citizens and residents getting vaccinated. And Canada is just nowhere near even being in the ballpark. And we're not just talking about Israel and the United Arab Emirates, which have done particularly well on this, but countries that one doesn't think of as being at the forefront of, well, anything. No no offense to places like the Seychelles and Indonesia, which are uh, not exactly developed nations, but they're doing better than Canada in a lot of metrics at getting their citizens vaccinated. Israel is preparing to reopen things in a matter of months. Now, I've got some very significant qualms with Israel's vaccine passport approach, but you know what? Israel is at least opening, and they have a a track that they're on in which they want to say that the country is open, and there are going to be a lot of Canadians that are finding that they are actually excluded 
from being able to go to certain places because those places all expect anyone being there to be vaccinated and Canadians are going to be at the back of this. And it's why I have some sympathy for the now former head of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, Mark Machen, who decided that he would go with his partner to the United Arab Emirates, to the Emirate of Dubai, to get vaccinated. Now, there may be more to the story than has been reported. Mark Machen said it was a personal trip and he didn't want it to become uh, the subject of discussion. But the Wall Street Journal reported that he was over in the UAE and I believe is still there awaiting his second dose to get vaccinated. Now, we've decided to make travel the unforgivable sin of Canadian politics. A lot of people still paying for Rod Phillips, the former Ontario finance minister's decision to spend Christmas in St. Bart's. But the reality is that travel itself was not the problem. And I know we talked about this back in December. The issue was Rod Phillips traveling while he was a minister in a government that was telling people not to travel. The hypocrisy rather than the travel was the problem. And that's why I wasn't too upset when a bunch of Alberta cabinet ministers had been in Hawaii as well as staffers in Jason Kenney's government because that government hadn't been telling people not to travel, so they weren't the problem. Now, Mark Machen is a guy who hobnobs with the global elite. He's spoken at the Davos Forum. He, has, he was actually there a few weeks ago at the virtual Davos Summit, talking about who knows what because it was behind closed doors. So there are lots of questions one might raise about him, but I do not for a second judge him based on wanting to get vaccinated when it seems like no one in Canada is going to for quite some time. But this is now enough to get him ousted. Now, I think that there's a big challenge when Canadians start seeing that the elites play by different rules than the rest of us plebs do. And, and that's perhaps the great injustice in what happened with Mark Majin. Canadians that don't have the ability to hop on a plane and go to UAE, that can't afford the quarantine hotel upon their return to Canada, that can't take the time off work or can't work remotely, that they see someone who's handling their money going and doing this thing they never could. Well, unfortunately, the world has always been filled with that inequality. But if you take a purely utilitarian view of this matter, well, that is one fewer person or two fewer people actually in the line waiting to get vaccinated in Canada. He didn't go and bill the taxpayers for it, as far as we know. He went on his own dime, on his own time, got vaccinated. Well, that's one fewer person, two fewer people that Canadians need to wait behind to get vaccinated, which is a great service to this country, if you ask me. He's not... Again, so far as I can tell, been telling anyone else not to travel. The federal government has. The federal government has set out rules that only affect ordinary people because if you've got enough money, if you've got enough flexibility, you can actually do whatever you want. And that's the reality of this pandemic is that the restrictions are targeting a certain class of people that the government really doesn't care about. And this is the real injustice from the government at this is that they're putting all these rules and measures forward, taking something that is technically legal. It's not illegal to travel. It's not illegal to leave your country or to return to your country. But they're making it so cumbersome and cost prohibitive that the average person cannot do it. But the super rich, the elites, well, they can do whatever they want because they just have the money to make it happen. And the Trudeau government doesn't actually seem to care about that. They know it's happening. Just take a look at the influx of people at these quarantine hotels in the rollout of it. They had massive, massive numbers of people that were trying to go into hotels, so much so that there were hours-long waits. People were uh, busting the booking line because there were so many people coming back into the country that were affected by this. 
Is travel really the problem? Is it fair to scapegoat travelers the way the government has just to distract from their own ineffectiveness and ineptitude in getting vaccines, in managing the pandemic domestically, in getting aid to where the aid is required? You may not like that people are traveling abroad. That's fine. It's not for everyone. But don't play the government's game when they try to get everyone to look at all of these other things that are happening so that they don't look at what's happening right here in Canada. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. As I mentioned at the top of the program, happen to be in British Columbia right now, beautiful BC, and given that I haven't seen another human being that I'm not married to for, you know, the last year, I thought it would be a good opportunity to chat with a guest I was going to have on the show anyway this week, but it just so happens we are in the same general vicinity, and that is Angelo Isidoro, who you may know as the host of Cancel This, a very popular podcast on the post-millennial but who ironically went through the cancel mob himself in recent weeks, and I'm very glad is willing to speak up about it. Now, this is particularly interesting because he has perspective at seeing this both as a cancelee, but also as a journalist. So we'll talk about this with Angelo Isidoro here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Angelo, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about this from a, a couple of different perspectives, Angelo, because you went through something that you've covered a great many times in other people. And in a lot of ways, I, I think that makes your story more sympathetic because a lot of the times people who themselves have been part of cancel mobs will get canceled and it's very difficult for people to find sympathy for them. Whereas You've understood before going through what you went through that this was a problem for quite a while. Yeah, and it's helped me be more analytical of it because it is a bizarre situation where, I mean, for the past four years, I've been hosting speakers like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, and now I'm doing this podcast. And even my writing is all situated around cancel culture. So it's very bizarre to have it happen to you, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's strange, but it gave me... A perspective that is very nuanced where I as a journalist and as a as a writer as someone who looks at this stuff can analyze it from a perspective of this is how this animal works this is how the mob works this is what they do first this is why they use that word this is how it happens and this is how they ruin your life I have to say that reporting on it and speaking to people is very different from having it happen to you it's obviously completely different and that's sort of what frazzled me the most was Although I've realized and I've known that the cancel mob is malevolent, having it actually happen to you is a whole other story. It's, it's kind of horrifying. Let's talk about what happened, because in a lot of perspectives, this may not have tripped a lot of people's radars nationwide. This was a, a regional story to some extent, but for you, it, it becomes your whole world. And, and we'll talk about that. You have been involved, as you've just mentioned, in various forms of political activism. You were sitting on the board of a municipal political party in Vancouver, which is a phenomenon that people outside of Vancouver might not understand as much, the, the nonpartisan association. And there was a story that was presented as one be, as about the NPA, but ended up becoming about you in a lot of ways, and a, a photograph of you making this gesture that I've always known in my life as being about nothing but the word okay. 
And I mean that I'm going to get canceled for doing that in, in yeah, the show. Yeah, I was about to say that. You, he yeah, did well, the, I have nothing to do with we'll this blur, guy. We will blur it out. We will blur it out in the final. But but you did that. You were wearing a, a, a Make America Great Again hat, and and this was presented as evidence that this organization you were with, with had, had gone far right. Ha, does that sum up at the very surface level the story? Yeah, it does. It, it's a strange story because it is dressed in a hyper-localized issue, which is the nonpartisan association. Out of everything I do, a volunteer position that is completely innocuous, I mean, I'm interested in housing. That's why I got involved in it. They use that as a vehicle to cancel me, and I've since been essentially forced to resign from that position. So, as you said, um, you know, this outlet took a picture of me four years ago when I was, you know, a first-year university student, and I was going to a protest happening in downtown Vancouver, which was uh, a Trump Tower was opening and people were upset. So me and other college kids thought it would be, you know, silly and dumb to wear a Trump hat and go and mess with people. And of course, at that time in, in February of 2017, that gesture besides being known innocuously as okay, was also a silly mimicry of Trump, right? If you watch even SNL with Alec Baldwin playing Mm -hmm. Trump, Trump has always had really bizarre hand gestures. So that's what that was. Later on, it turned into something else, but they took that photo, sat on it for four years now, and waited until, uh, you know, this opportunity to release it under the context of, well, the Christchurch shooter used the same gesture. Um, January 6th just happened, the insurrection in the States. They wait for things to happen and then retroactively try to ruin your life. So that's what they did there. Um, again, they dressed it up as a municipal issue. So even the mayor of Vancouver got involved and released a statement under the city government. Yeah. So uh, it, it turned into this big hyper-localized issue, but it's a broader issue that relates to really one of the most egregious, and obviously I'm biased, but an egregious case of cancel culture because it's a total lie. It's a total fabrication. And and that's, I'd say, at the crux of cancel culture, is you take a a two-dimensional caricature of someone, which may or may not be true. It it either captures someone's worst moment or it it completely concocts a a moment in an image, and it tries to apply that to every other facet of of their life. And, And in your case, you actually have a body of work to speak of. And I, I think that's why that's so difficult, is that in the nearly four years since that photo, you have put on record what you stand for, what you believe in. And, and I've heard episodes that you've done. I've, I've had some exchanges with you. It doesn't fit. And if you were a blank slate and they didn't have anything else to judge you on but that photo, sure, maybe you could ask some questions. But that, I think, is what I find the worst about this, is that there's no understanding that people grow. There's no understanding that, hey, this snapshot in time might have represented something else. Yeah, I I think it's more difficult for them because I've been so public Mm -hmm. in my life. And a lot of that is intentional because when you are in politics, when you're writing about politics, you're just engaged it's very important that you don't do this PR recommended thing of just be silent, don't answer, don't do it. Because at the end of the day, when you look at me, whether you're listening to me or you look at my face, I don't match what they're being accused, yeah. what they're accusing me of. Yeah, you, I don't look at you and see white supremacists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even if you if you listen to my content, like I'm a pretty moderate guy, so they intentionally ignore that to such a degree where, you know, when these outlets want to defame you. They're not acting in good faith. So whether you issue a statement or not, 
it doesn't really make a difference. You know, to one of the outlets, I issued a statement. I provided links explaining that this was essentially a hoax that was co-opted later and, and this, et cetera. And they intentionally ignore it because it doesn't fit their narrative. Because if that gesture doesn't mean anything, what's the story? How do we destroy this person's life, mm-hmm. right? They're, they have to build you up into a villain. And unfortunately, there are very few mediums where you have the opportunity to speak freely. Um, you know, True North is a great example of that, where it's, it's uncensored, not in the way that this is explicit, but in the way that nuance is applied to the conversation. So uh, I'm lucky in the sense that I have a, a modest following. Mm-hmm. I, again, I still find it bizarre that I was canceled when, you know, I, I quite frankly don't matter that much to be on the front cover of the paper. But I think I was turned into a, a political mascot, and I'm somewhat lucky that I do have that following. Others aren't. There's, a, I believe, a, a laborer in California did the same gesture, and I think he was just flicking a booger or something. But someone took a picture of him, and he lost his job. Wow. Right? Wow. So when we talk about cancel culture, we get so into the weeds of, you know, Gina Carano or, or what's happening to that celebrity or this celebrity... But really, that's just a vacuum of what seems to be happening to normal, everyday people now. For years, I've gotten messages from people saying, I support everything you do, but I can't be public about it. Or this happened to me and I don't know what to do. Or, you know, even with this, I had a lot of people say, like, this is nonsense and everything, but I obviously can't be public about it. And after a while, you begin to realize that we've essentially handed, you know, the keys to the culture to a very vocal minority the vast majority of people look at that gesture and they're like, you know, it's scuba diver, it means okay. If the waitress asks you how your food is, your mouth is full, you, you do that gesture. It means nothing. Mm-hmm. But the framing of it is, this is widely regarded as a white power symbol. Mm-hmm. And even that word, widely, that, that is, it's all tactical. And I know it because I'm a journalist too. Like, we know how the game works. Yeah, so- someone, someone who doesn't know the implications of that who themselves, if you were to flash that sign to them on the street one day, uh, would have no idea there was anything potentially illicit about it. They would read that story and assume by the way it's framed that, oh, well, he must I didn't know it was that, but he must have known. And, and, that's, and that's where it becomes. So you start imputing motive and the worst possible interpretation of what could be the most mundane of things. Yeah, well, and then, of course, you have situations like Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, who probably doesn't know anything about culture wars. Or, or, or about anything, yeah, frankly. or about anything, this. frankly. Yeah. I mean, he's been a disaster mayor. Yeah. And he releases a statement, again, under the city letterhead. Yeah. So the, the state is calling me a radical. He came after me in a statement. He doesn't name me explicitly, but he, you know, was very concerned about radicalism within, you know, this other party. And... People need to realize there are repercussions when you say things. I know we're all sitting at our keyboards and we think that, you know, this isn't real life. But when you say that about someone, it affects the other person's life. I mean, I've had to resign from this position. I've gotten death threats. I've gotten hate mail. Um, Very recently, a family member of mine has had their workplace contacted and now they're under review. This is a problem because, again, I'm in a lucky position where I work in media so I'm able to, I'm already on that battlefield. Well, you, yeah, you have a, a natural bounce back because you have a platform. A lot of the people that you've, you've even alluded to don't have that. I mean, for them being called some of the names that have been applied to you is just the end of any ambition and any hope they would have at, at doing anything. And 
you, you'd said something that I, I thought was very interesting there about the, the silent ally and the silent friend in this. And, and it's something that I've been through myself, which is why I, I think there's so, something that needs to be said about this. It starts to reinforce your, in, if you responded the way I did when it happened to me, it starts to reinforce your toxicity in some ways because you start wondering, oh, well, if, so, if, if all these people are afraid, maybe it's true. Or may, maybe I am actually damaged. And, and you start to view dynamics through that lens. Yeah. Well, you get gas. It's gaslighting, essentially. Yeah. Because on one hand, part of you is it, you're so low that you're thankful that someone does yeah. validate and say you're a good person. Even if, even if they're only telling you and would never say exactly. it to anywhere, anyone else. Exactly. Yeah. But on the yeah. second hand, when you look at it, you're like, there's a problem here. Because... Everyone is saying that, but so few people are willing to say it publicly. Yeah. So what is it that we're all afraid of? I understand. It's, it, it's scary. It's scary to have your, your employer contacted. It's scary to have people who are essentially obsessed with you to come after you and try to ruin your life. The Google results are there now. If you Google yeah. my name, white supremacist comes up. Well, that, but that, that is the dangerous part, though, because... In terms of the buzz and the trending topics, people move on. And, and in, in your case, it seemed like people moved on very quickly. But that doesn't make it go away for the person. And, and that's the big issue that I think cancel culture needs to address or needs to have addressed and, and by extension be obliterated in that regard is that, yeah, the, the trend moves on, the mob moves on, the horde moves on, but the carnage that they left behind is still there. And there is no remedy that we've built into society yet for that. No, and I think it's intentional on the other side because what they do, again, there's, there's an ecology on the left, and I'm talking about the radical left. There's an ecology where you have different quote-unquote journalists that build a narrative about someone, and that narrative then encapsulates the Wikipedia article Yeah, because you have sources. Well, that source says that and that. And it's the all, same as the widely regarded it's as. It's the widely regarded. He is widely believed to be. Yes. yes. Widely believed to be yeah. by who? Three yeah. crazy people on Twitter, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a tactic that is used to mislead the layman, the person, the, pers- the people that we speak to, right? The people who work nine to five, they get home, they don't have time to go through 10 hours of pages to see, oh, wow, this is a hoax. They actually lied about this person. This is a total, complete fabrication. They don't have time, right? They read what they see. They say, oh, widely regarded as a white power symbol. They're like, oh, I didn't think that, but they're saying that that's what it is. I mean, there's a reason why trust in the media is so low, right? It's not that, you know, populists promoted fake news narratives or whatever. Like, there's clearly a problem here, and you're affecting people's lives. And and in this case, you know, I had to have a conversation with myself what do I do here? Do I pack my bags and move to Alaska? Like what, my, the government of my city is calling me a radical. Yeah. This outlet that ranks high on Google is calling me a radical. It's calling me something so abhorrent, something my ancestors fought against, something that I fight against. And I have a body of work to show. Yeah. And you try to intellectualize it by being like, well, no, I can't be this because here's evidence and here's this. And, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly, again, I've repeated this many times, but I'm not exactly Hitler's wet dream. So <laughs> it, 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 you try to apply logic yeah. to it. And what you realize is that they're, they know what they're doing. Half these people know what they're doing. They're acting in bad faith to try to eliminate you from the media and the equation. 
but the other half are just unknowingly consuming it and being a Twitter mob. So I'm in a position now where, again, I had to choose whether to walk away or to fight, and I have to fight it. So that if that's what my life is now, if that's what my life will ever be, is trying to clear my name, what do you do? Because if you let it be, they get emboldened. We know that. We, these people celebrate when they cancel someone, when they got Gina fired from The Mandalorian. They see it as a moral, virtuous victory. And it's evil. Mm-hmm. And the only way to defeat it is to not let them keep winning. It, it's, it's just they keep getting emboldened and it happens over and over again. So it's not just about me. Yeah. It's about the next, you know, schmuck. You've talked about uh, legal action. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on, on where you think the fight needs to be, because there do seem to be two camps. There's one side that says, you know what, we need to you know, get into a street fight with them and file lawsuits and put them on defense. And then there's, I'd say, the more romantic notion that this is all something we need to have out in culture and we need to shift the debate and shift the narrative. And then there are probably some hybrid positions. But where do you... I'll ask it in two ways, actually. Where did you, before a month ago view the importance of the fight and where do you view it now? I I see it as a hybrid because there seems to be something inherent in the West which is a belief in a justice system, right? You believe someone wronged you, they took something from you, you, we all are encapsulated in this this belief that righteousness works, that justice works and it's very scary when you realize that that's not always the case so I think on one hand, the legal aspect is there for a reason. You look at the uh, Covington schoolboy, the Nick Sandman, I believe his name is, who essentially had his life ruined mm-hmm. over wearing a hat and standing there. And he sued and he won. I think he won a ridiculous amount of money. Mm-hmm. So on a legal aspect, that sets a precedent that is very important that tells these radicals there are consequences to what you do. Not just cultural consequences, but real consequences. So on that end, you know, I am suing the mayor. I am suing this outlet. Can I sue everyone? Well, no, because I'm not, you know, it's unfortunate that parts of the right have made it extremely commonplace to just sue everyone you don't like, right? I mean, even Trump himself is just, I'm just going to sue you. The reality is that part of justifying yourself and clearing your name is saying, I am willing to die on this hill. I am going to die on this hill in court and I'm going to go all the way. Let's do a discovery. Let's do everything we have to do. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is cultural, which is having discussions about this, which is reporting on it, which is talking about what it does to people's lives and how it doesn't just happen to the odd crazy person that is, well, he's crazy, he's radical, he'll get cancelled, but it'll never come to me. Mm-hmm. I'm in the middle, right? I mean, we're at a point now where even some leftists are getting cancelled, right? Like, it, it, it's come to a point where as a culture we need to have a discussion in terms of what are the consequences of what we've done in the past. And furthermore, how do we interpret things? Because we talk about mistakes made in the past, How many of these cancellations were really mistakes? How many of these cancellations were just well-coordinated attacks? Because what is cancel culture? Mm -hmm. The left says, well, can't, you know, free speech, but not free from consequences. It's consequences culture. They've actually, to use the left's terms, they've appropriated right-wing rhetoric. On that, because that that was always what conservatives used to say of well, you know what it's the marketplace of ideas, but they're not actually 
committed to that. They're only committed to that in that narrow way when it serves their interest to cancel. Yeah. Well, in this case, they're saying, oh, you know, so much for the free speech guy. You're yeah, sue exa- for well, exactly. It's like there are consequences to defaming someone. And that is part of the marketplace of ideas. Exactly. That, they, that there's a, an expectation of honesty. And if you aren't living up to that end of the bargain, that moral contract of honest speech, you can be sued for it. Exactly. So it's funny that they say, well, it's consequences culture. You did that. You deserve the consequences now. And it's, again, most of the time, sometimes people deserve to get canceled or whatever. You know, you look at Woody Allen, who's in the news right now. But in this case, it is something that is manufactured by very few people who are intentionally trying to make the perception that everyone hates you. Twitter is not real life. No. If you go to 90% of the people on the street and do that gesture, they're going to say that means okay. If we talk about the hat for a moment, 75 million people voted for that hat. So it's not just a matter of having a discussion on how do we punish people retroactively for their past mistakes. It's how do we realize as a culture that a lot of the time they weren't mistakes. A lot of the time, things that happened in the past were just not really that big of a deal in the grand scale. Like, why are we allowing very few people to coordinate and destroy someone? To some degree, cancel culture is an ancient sort of thing. You look at Socrates, who was, you know, taken... uh, Human history is mobs destroying someone, right? The greatest stories in history are that. It's, It's the psychology of the mob. So Twitter's not entirely new, but the internet, unfortunately, has brought out the worst in some of us. So, yes, you gotta do the legal aspect to save, you know, your livelihood, but at the same time, we need to have an open discussion, not only about the past, but the reality that very few people are coordinating to destroy people. Angelo Isidoro, host of Cancel This on the Post Millennial, and I'll say survivor of the cancel mob because you're still standing and you're fighting back. Thank you for chatting about this. Thank you for having me. That was my interview with Angelo Isidoro here on The Andrew Lawton Show. And we are just doing the one show this week. I am going to be, as mentioned, doing production on Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's war on gun owners this week. So unfortunately, we are down to a reduced capacity, but we'll be back with the full gusto next week here on True North. My thanks to you all. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.